A very special day here at the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. Why? Well, it's the first episode of 2019, and starting as we mean to go on, we have an incredible leader in their field, an individual that saw Salesforce firsthand scale from a $180 million business to a $7.5 billion business over an incredible 10-year tenure. So I'm thrilled to welcome Ryan Barreto. Ryan is the SVP of Global Sales at Sprout Social, a leading provider of social media engagement, advocacy, and analytics solutions for business. To date, they've raised over $111 million in funding from the likes of NEA, Goldman Sachs, and their very recently announced 40 million Series D, led by Future Fund. At Sprout Social, Ryan oversees both the sales and the customer success organizations. And prior to Sprout, he was the VP of Global Sales at Pardot, a Salesforce company. And at Pardot, Ryan's team tripled revenue growth in just two years, making Pardot one of Salesforce's fastest growing business lines. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro. I really do serve appreciate that, my friend. However, before we dive into the show today, you might remember last month we had Krish, CEO and co-founder of Chargebee, join us as a guest on the show. Amongst other things, we chatted about pricing, bootstrapping, and the right time to raise capital. And Krish's product, Chargebee, helps SaaS and subscription businesses scale globally by automating subscriptions, billing, invoicing, and accounting. And using Chargebee, you can analyze key business metrics that impact growth, such as MRR, LTV, quick ratio, and net negative churn. Simply go to Chargebee to sign up for a free trial. And speaking of great entrepreneurs there, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. This time we'll hear from Jim Saccord, CEO at Kashu, one of the most popular online accounting apps with subscribers in over 180 countries and is truly passionate about giving small business owners the financial tools they need to succeed. Hi, Harry. The most important thing we've learned is to really use your own software. I don't think there's any better way to develop product and customer insight than actually eating your own dog food. We're the biggest critics or fans of our own software and it drives us to constantly improve. Thanks for that, Jim. Awesome to have someone else in the studio there with me and using your own product to truly experience what your customers do is a great way to achieve success. And to learn how you can successfully grow your revenue more than 100% through integrated payments, check out WePay's latest case study at wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. Plus a bonus, you'll also get to meet WePay at next month's Sasta annual. And finally, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, and customer success, they grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news. Zocri allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zokri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com, to sign up now. But you've heard quite enough from me, so now I'm thrilled to hand over to Ryan Barreto at Sprout Social. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Ryan, it is absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. As I said, I'm so excited for this one. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Harry. I'm excited to be here. Well, I would love to kick off this day, Ryan, with a little bit about you. So tell me, how did you make your way into most definitely the wonderful world of SaaS and come to be SVP of sales at Sprout Social? Thanks, Harry. Since I was a kid, I've always had this entrepreneurial spirit and love for building things. My friends and family still tease me about the fireworks store I ran out of my house and my bedazzled jeans business. 
business. And at the end of 2005, I was winding down my own bootstrap startup that was in the online travel space. I was trying to find something new that wasn't going to be your typical corporate job. And I was lucky enough to land an interview with Salesforce.com, who just opened an office in Toronto. And at that time, there were about 175 million and 800 employees. And I'm a bit embarrassed to admit it now, but I'd never heard of them. I walked into this amazing waterfront office that only had about 20 people in it, but open seating for hundreds. And it was so impressed with the confidence they had. They're very clear that their mission was to disrupt and dominate the software industry, which was pretty given that their tagline was no software. I ended up staying at Salesforce for over 10 years in a variety of roles, helping grow offices and teams across the U.S. and Canada. And it ultimately landed me in Chicago, where I now live. And my last two years at Salesforce were spent leading the sales organization for Parda, the marketing automation solution that Salesforce had acquired. And that job gave me access to an amazing founder, Adam Blitzer, and the chance to lead a global sales team for a business that was still being run as a startup within Salesforce. I mean, what an incredible journey that is, though, seeing the kind of frontline hypergrowth that's at Salesforce. And I, I do have to ask, but before we press on, and it's the question of kind of having seen that from the frontline, both with Pardot and Salesforce together over the 10 years, what were some of the biggest takeaways from seeing that scaling into hypergrowth? There was so much learning and so many amazing people to learn from, but I'll try and narrow it down to two things. The first takeaway would be be deliberate and explicit about your business plan. Write it down, share the rough draft with your team, debate it, prioritize it. Salesforce called it their V2 mom process, and it stood for vision, values, methods, obstacles, and metrics. And getting a chance to see Mark Benioff workshop that annual V2 mom with the management team was amazing. I remember a meeting when Keith Block, who's now co-CEO, had just started. Mark actually made him go through his V2 mom in front of hundreds of people across our leadership team. Mark would be jumping in and challenging Keith on the priorities. Keith, what's more important? Method two or method three? Method three or method four? Keith, why is three more important than four? It was actually a little uncomfortable to watch, but it really hammered home that if everything was important, nothing was, and that every single leader in the company needed to invest the same amount of time and energy in their own plans. The second takeaway I'd say is just be maniacally focused on your customer. And I really believe that Salesforce pioneered the department we now know as customer success. Customers were at the heart of everything that we did. And if you went to Dreamforce, you'd see these massive posters of our customers' faces on the side of Moscone Conference Center with the heading Customer Heroes because they truly were the star of the show. And because the company was so dialed into what customers wanted, they were able to disrupt the industry. All of a sudden, they set this expectation that implementation should be fast and painless, that business users should be empowered to configure CRM without IT help, that you should expect free upgrades multiple times a year, and that you shouldn't have to pay for all of it up front. And it was just a great reminder that your customers have a lot of the answers you're looking for. I mean, so many takeaways, but I would have loved to have been in that meeting with Keith and Mark. But I do want to break the show up today into a couple of different elements, Ryan. So I want to really take the approach almost like a funnel, starting with the market and market selection, and then move down into attracting customers both in sales and marketing, and then finish on the people that make this kind of very special process happen. Does that sound good? That sounds great. So if we start from the top, the market itself is often perceived the wisdom one has to focus, focus, focus. But you said to me before that you don't have to pick the market, you can have them all. Reminds me of Scarface, the world is ours. <laughs> but how can I not start with this, Ryan? What did you mean by this kind of contrarian statement that you can have them all? Yeah, I think we've all been told by analysts and experts that you need 
need to choose a target market that you can't be everything to everyone. But as Justin, our CEO at Sprout would say, that's just lazy. So as you might've guessed, we disagree with this belief. And if you want proof that the strategy can work, you take a look at Salesforce or Zendesk or Lassian or DocuSign or Slack. They are dominant across every segment and have done it at scale. And so far, the strategies worked well for us. If you look at G2 Crowd, we're the top rated social media management platform in every category. At the end of the day, if you can serve every segment profitably and without compromising your mission or your products, we think you should choose them all. I do agree. Can I ask, is it a case of layering where you start with SMB, slowly move to mid-market and then add on enterprise five years in with the product market fit established in each subsequent category? Or is it a case of kind of having them all from day one? No, I I think it's the former. I think you start off, you go after a market and as you grow, you layer them on. And if you do that, you can be successful in every market. Can I ask, do you have advice in terms of, I have a lot of SaaS founders who come to me and say, oh, do I do SMB first? Really just kind of get some incremental revenue going? Or do I go for the big, heavy ACV, but long sales cycle at the beginning? How do you think about the SMB versus enterprise first approach? I personally think that it's easier to start an SMB and grow from there. I think when you focus in on SMBs, you're thinking about scale, you're thinking about user experience and user interface, and you can go ahead and you can start to layer on some of the more complex features, some of the scalability after the fact once you've nailed product market fit. Now, we said about kind of having it all, and I totally agree with you there in terms of starting an SMB, maybe being slightly easier. I do want to slightly play judge and jury with that having it all, though, uh, and question you rigorously. Two core concerns arise for me, being messaging and then functionality. So starting on messaging, the messaging that converts with enterprise is pretty fundamentally different, maybe, to that of SMB. How does one approach this when trying to have it all, so to speak, in market? Yeah, you're definitely right on that. In terms of messaging, we've created dedicated go-to-market teams. So we have marketing, sales, and customer success teams that are specifically focused on different segments like SMB or mid-market or enterprise or agency. And when you do this, you can actually tailor a message and experience to the right person at the right time on every interaction. Can I ask, do you expect them to work together or are they quite siloed organizations? It's a bit of both. I think that you really do need to make sure that your strategy as a company is holistic, but then execution is individual. No, I completely agree. And I think you should coin that one. Uh, That's almost book worthy. In in terms of my second concern, functionality, it's often the case that large-scale enterprises need considerably more, be it data storage, security. We know the long list that can often come. How does one solve for this when trying to cover such a broad term? And and do the products look fundamentally different in themselves as well? Yeah, in our experience, the needs aren't actually as different as you might think. And that's because while customers may vary in size and complexity, they all have this need for elegant, powerful, easy-to-use tools. That's just universal. And once you've nailed that, you can actually go back and layer on that complex security, workflow, compliance, and scaling needs. But it definitely all goes back to that user experience because you have to nail that first. No, I couldn't agree more, especially kind of in the consumerization of enterprise that we're seeing today. I also think we often over-egg the demands of enterprise in certain cases. But now we have this go-to-market, so to speak, nailed. When we discussed before the next step in this process, you said to me that boring is better than sexy. You know me, I love things like this. <laughs> Again, how can I not start with that? What did you mean by boring is better than sexy with regards to winning the market specifically? Yeah, I thought, I thought you'd like that, Harry. I've seen this movie play out in CRM with 
Salesforce and marketing automation with Parda and now on social media with Sprout. And that sophisticated feature of product that has a lot of gloss on it may drive an initial purchase. But if it takes a long time to implement a consultant to make changes and the actual end users hate it, you're going to see churn at renewal time. And for what I've seen, if you want to win the market, the stuff that really matters is what can sometimes seem like table stakes. Are you easy to work with from a sales and success standpoint? Do you actually support your customers in the channel they want across social or phone or email or chat? Can you support them as fast as they expect? Can you scale to a large user base? And is your solution really going to be easy to implement and use? These are the things that actually drive killer customer reviews and word of mouth referrals and and can keep you growing. So one thing that I really think about when you say boring is better than sexy and kind of the keys to growth and winning the market is actually pricing. Because I think we've seen just such little innovation in pricing models over the last few years. And often founders say like, you know, what's the point? Why try and reinvent the wheel? Boring is better than sexy. How do you think about pricing, pricing innovation, and your thoughts around that and the importance of it? And does boring is better than sexy apply to pricing as well? Yeah. You definitely don't want to be an outlier, but you have to remember that in SaaS, a lot of companies are still winging it when it comes to pricing. So it can definitely be risky to to be a copycat and just follow the leader. There are a lot of things to keep in mind when tackling pricing, but there are four things that really guide our strategy. One, keep it simple and aligned to customer value metrics. Two, make sure it stays accessible for small customers. Three, make sure it still optimizes for retention and growth. And then finally, four, use data, not your gut. An important lesson that I've learned from Saster and in practice at Sprout, no matter how nervous your sales team is about changing prices, even when you increase them, you probably aren't charging enough for the value you provide. And every time we've increased pricing, we've seen a significant lift in revenue and improvements in our efficiency and retention. Can I ask, are there any signs that you're reaching the ceiling of what one can feasibly charge? Is it when you get kind of 50% pushback on pricing? Are there those kind of indicators that suggest you're going to the extremes now? It definitely goes back to looking at your data and making sure that you're taking stock in your conversion rates, what you're seeing as people hit your website, what's happening when people go through the trial. You also need to make sure that you're constantly surveying your customers. So before you even launch this pricing, are you having conversations with customers to understand what their appetite is and where you might be able to price? No, absolutely. We did also then mention the element of the support of those customers and reaching them on the channels that matter to them. Going back to kind of serving everyone in market, how do you think about kind of providing lightning fast human support to SMBs and smaller tickets in a unit economically efficient manner? Is that really possible? It's hard to believe, but at Sprout, we only had two technical support people managing our first 10,000 customers, and they loved us. Now, now we we also had a team of customer success managers to help our customers, but they got to focus on the fun stuff like sharing best practices because the product was intuitive enough that it did most of the heavy lifting. But we believe that customer support shouldn't be just reserved for big budgets. So we've set up our model in a way that every single customer can get personal attention. Some evidence of that, we're one of the few companies in our space that actually still puts a phone number on a website because we want you to call us if you need us and not just for sales. So I do think it's realistic to manage the volume, but only if one, you've built your product in a scalable and intuitive way. Two, you've built on a single code base and don't have customers with messy customized deployments, which becomes really important if you want to deliver free
frequent updates. We were able to deliver 125 of them in 2018 because we set up our system in this way. And then three, you've made it a business priority that your team's actually committed to. So it definitely is possible, but those three things are really important. You mentioned customized deployments there, Ryan. Again, you know me, probably one of the many reasons I'm single, but customization is one of my nerdy passions. Tell me, how do you think about customization and whether one should really be willing to engage with it or not to sign those big logos? And what are your thoughts there? Yeah, you can always find a number to help justify customization. But typically when you do the math on maintenance and technical debt and the distraction, that number can become pretty ugly. And if you're planning to serve more than a few hundred customers, the math usually won't work. And with 25,000 customers, we're looking for a way to solve a customer request through configuration versus customization. Or if we're seeing enough customers asking for it, we'll put it on the roadmap and deliver it in the right way. But if it's not worth your roadmap time, that's probably your answer. No, I totally agree with you there, especially kind of aligning to roadmap. But we mentioned a number of different elements there from the marketing to the pricing to the support. When it comes to sales, I've heard you say before that being good at sales won't make you a great sales leader. So again, starting on that, what's the thing here, Ryan, especially coming from the behemoth that informed your perspective? Yeah, coming from a big company, I quickly learned that being good at sales won't make you a great sales leader in a startup. Sales may have been your major, but you need to start to prepare for marketing and product and finance to become your minors because you're no longer just a sales leader. You're going to get pulled into critical decisions across the entire business. And it becomes really necessary to check your title and ego at the door and move from answering to asking and from talking to listening, which can sometimes be hard for a long-winded salesperson. But to steal the words of Satya Nadella, don't be a know-it-all, be a learn-it-all. And I've been pretty lucky that as I ramped here at Sprout, I had a patient and a collaborative CEO and executive team, and that I was able to hire some amazing directors that are better than me in so many ways. People that are deep in the details of their business, know their data inside out, and are comfortable challenging my ideas and opinions. I love Satya's statement there on be a learn-it-all. But let's say we're a young emerging talent in the sales team and we want to be a learn-it-all. What can one do on the side to really gain and excel in the, as you said there, the minors that you just specified? What kind of works and what doesn't from your experience? The first thing is to take pride in being a student again. Find mentors that have done it. I'm in Chicago and the Chicago tech scene is, is definitely a special one. Thanks to Sales Assembly, a local tech community here, the leaders meet all the time and are willing to provide advice and be your biggest cheerleaders. So be vulnerable and ask for help and make sure to reciprocate. I'd also say get fluent with the important SaaS metrics in your business, LTV to CAC, magic number, payback, rule of 40. I never saw any of this stuff as a sales leader at a big company and it becomes really, really important that you, you have it down cold. And then finally, consume as much information as you can. Hard thing about hard things, the high growth handbook, the sales acceleration formula have all been super helpful on this journey for me. No, I'm so with you. High growth handbook is one of my absolute favorites. I do have to also, in terms of, say, place ourselves in the position of a founder scaling their SaaS company and we're looking to build out the sales team. Do you want to hire when you are adding the first people to the sales team? Do you want to hire the learned alls or do you want to hire the branded Salesforce reps who come with 20 years of experience and the logos to match? How do you think about that when adding the first few people? Yeah, hiring is just so important and the best truly spend a lot of time on it. In our business, it's critical that we're hiring people with an analytical mind, people that can't live without data, who are process oriented. You don't necessarily need those muscles in your typical enterprise company when you only have a handful of customers. But when you're dealing with thousands of new customers every quarter, you need a team that really geeks out on this stuff. I've also leveraged a concept 
that I found in an HBR article that focuses on this idea of three abilities, and it's become my hack for quickly assessing talent. The first is ability. Does someone have the basic skill set to do the job? And to your question, Harry, I've quickly learned that what makes someone great at a large organization doesn't necessarily make them great at a startup, and I've made some early hiring mistakes. When you're hiring for a startup, you need people who love building process where it doesn't exist. You need people who enjoy being the underdog versus the big brand. People who be taking pride in being resourceful and won't be defeated if you don't have that case study or security documentation. The second is coachability. Does someone have a growth mindset? Can we teach them and do they want to learn? Are they optimistic and solution focused? And are they actually going to put in the effort and time to become world class? And the third is likability. And this isn't your typical, do they pass the peer test? It's figuring out if their customers and peers will want to work with them. Will they want to help them? Will they enjoy collaborating with them? If I see all three of these things, it usually makes for a great hire. I love those three, and I actually haven't heard them quite described so succinctly before. I do want to ask, though, Ryan, I love the interview process itself. I'm going to come tomorrow for an interview with you for a sales rep role. I'm super excited for it. Tell me, do you have a favorite interview question that you find most revealing of an individual's potential character, ability, likability, and kind of one that really defines that process and whether you think they're a strong candidate? I love to focus in on the growth mindset. So I like to ask people about a time in their career where they had to do something that they didn't have any prior experience in and how did they figure it out? How did they learn? How did they get it right? How did they skin their knee and how did they come back and get there? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Have you read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit? Grit, I love it. It's one of my favorites. I do though, Ryan, want to finish on an element where you've really excelled in terms of building out the team, being kind of diversity and adding diverse elements to the team. Obviously a very hot topic, wider recognition now, which is fantastic to see. What have been some of your core lessons when it comes to building and scaling diverse teams? Let's start with that. I want to start off by saying that as a person of color, this is a, a very personal topic for me. And most diverse colleagues I know, including myself, typically think about this on a daily basis. There are very few people that look like me in my role. And as you move up in a company, the numbers typically drop. And for some, it can cause imposter syndrome, this fear that you may not belong or that you may not be good enough or that others don't think you're good enough. I'm pretty lucky that I have an incredible role model and my dad who always encouraged me to wear my uniqueness as a badge of honor and to outwork everyone else. And that mindset has helped me stay grateful and hungry and, and focused on learning. And it's what I share with diverse candidates when they ask me about my journey. Jason Lemkin recently tweeted that he had asked 40 leaders for help on diversity and only one responded. Now, I don't think that the other 39 leaders ignored Jason. I just don't think they have it figured out. And in my opinion, the main issue today is sourcing a diverse, a diverse pipeline of candidates. And most companies say that they want diverse employees, but the current candidate pool won't get them there. So it becomes really important that we take a hard look at the language in our job postings. For example, the way it's written can sometimes make people feel unqualified when they actually are. And that we're actually proactively looking for diverse candidates because we can't just rely on the inbound applications. Can I ask, if you're a founder in San Francisco and you absolutely want to add those very positive, diverse elements to the team, how should you go about expanding that candidate pool that's often university friends and people you've worked with before? How can you actively do that? Is that hackathons? Is that going to the colleges themselves? 
what would your advice be? I definitely think it's a few of those things. We're also starting to see organizations focused in on helping companies build diverse candidate pipelines. Rework Training is a great example of this here in Chicago. A not-for-profit organization actually started by two spread social alumni, Harrison Horan and Shelton Banks. Their mission is actually to recruit, train, and place candidates from underserved communities and tech sales jobs. And we're seeing more and more of this organizations that are helping companies like our own find these diverse candidates. Because typically, the places where we're putting our applications aren't getting in front of the candidates that we want in our pool. Yeah, no, absolutely. Final question. Where do you see money going wrong with this process? I think the main challenge today is inclusion. So you, you can hire diverse candidates, but you need to create an environment where people truly feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. Some things to think about. Do you have a resource group for your diverse hires to find and get support and mentors that look like them? Do you train your employees on unconscious bias you can remove it from the workplace? Do you celebrate important milestones for all of your employee populations, things like Black History Month and Gay Pride? And are you constantly looking at your numbers to ensure that you're fair in your compensation and promotion practices? I would just say I, I've learned so much about this topic, which I credit to Sprout and Michelle Bess, who's our lead for diversity, equity, and inclusion here. And she wrote an article on the topic entitled, If Your Diversity Efforts Are Comfortable, You're Not Doing It Right. And I think that perfectly sums it up. No, I think it absolutely does. And I have to say, I do think it's also one area where Jason's done incredibly well with SASTA, especially when one looks at the conference, but absolutely agreed. agreed with you there. I do, though, as you know, my favorite element is the quick fire round. So I say a short statement, Ryan, 60 seconds, you give me an answer. How does that sound? That sounds great. So what motto or quote do you frequently revert back to and why? A few years ago, I saw a presentation from Toyota-san, the CEO of Toyota, and he shared his company philosophy of better, better, never best. For me, it's an awesome reminder that we need to get better every day in everything we do and that our best work is always just in front of us. Sales rep productivity, what's good to you? It definitely depends on your model and customer acquisition costs, but at Sprout, we aim for ARR that is four to six times a rep's on target earnings. Favorite SaaS reading material, what is the go-to must-read on a rainy day? Yeah, Harry, I'm a huge fan of Saster, but present company excluded. I also enjoy David Scott's for entrepreneurs, Thomas Tunga's OpenView Partners, and, and you definitely can't forget about Jason Lemkin's tweets. No, I totally agree with you there. And actually, Jason's tweets are now my primary reading, I have to admit. And then let's finish today, Ryan, on actually my favorite of any question, which is what do you know now with these many years of hindsight that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Well, I have I have a long list here, right? You won't have all the answers to the test. You're going to make important decisions without as much information as you want. You're often going to feel like you don't know what you're doing. Sometimes it'll seem like everyone around you has it figured out and they typically don't. All this is okay. If you just focus on your business plan, commit to doing great work, and most importantly, surround yourself with amazing people, it's all going to work out. So just make sure to have some fun on the journey. Ryan, this was so much fun. As I said, over the Christmas break, I was so excited for this interview. So thank you so much for being such a star. And I've so enjoyed chatting today. Thanks so much, Harry. Really appreciate it. What an incredible and inspiring guest to have on the show. And you can find out more from Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Barreto. Likewise, we'd love to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do so on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It really would be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, managing subscriptions, billing and invoicing can turn into a nightmare for scaling SaaS businesses. From offering customers multiple payment options to managing free trials, taxes and accounting. The dependencies on your billing system grows with your SaaS business. With Chargebee, you can turn your 
billing bottlenecks into a competitive advantage by automating the essentials of subscriptions, billing, and recurring revenue. Chargebee integrates with payment gateways like Stripe, Braintree, PayPal, and many more. And you can check them out today at chargebee.com to sign up for a free trial. And speaking of great entrepreneurs there, every week we talk briefly to a WePay customer about how they achieve success. This time we'll hear from Jim Saccord, CEO at Kashu, one of the most popular online accounting apps with subscribers in over 180 countries and is truly passionate about giving small business owners the financial tools they need to succeed. Hi, Harry. My tip is to remember the definition of disruptive technology. By definition, it always starts at the underserved low end of the market, builds scale, and then migrates up to go after the mid-market and the mainstream of the market. Thanks for that, Jim. Awesome to have someone else in the studio there with me. And using your own product to truly experience what your customers do is a great way to achieve success. And to learn how you can successfully grow your revenue more than 100% through integrated payments, check out WePay's latest case study at WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. Plus a bonus, you'll also get to meet WePay at next month's Sasta Annual. And finally, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt OKRs for goal setting and then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, and customer success, they grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news. Zocri allows you to track all your KPIs, create and manage OKRs, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri for free and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zocri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com, to sign up now. And as always, I so appreciate all your support. Really, it means the world to me, and I cannot wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.